You're about to listen to a new episode of Audio Signals. Get ready to take a journey into the known, the unknown, and everything in between. Recorded at no specific point in time nor space, ITSP Magazine's co-founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Marco. Sean, you ready? There's no limit being ready, Marco. No? Do you, have a, do you have a coin to talk into the, <laughs> the video game console and then you can see Ready Player One? That's right. And uh, all, all of life's real adventures. <laughs> and everything that right happened. There. Yeah. Did, did you used to play those video games? Would you do I played a lot time? of video games, yeah. In um, the arcade? In the, yeah, not many at home, to be honest with you. I'm, the, I'm not one of those guys. I don't know what what the reason was, but I never ended up doing that. But I spent a lot of time, a lot of maybe foolishly, a lot of quarters <laughs> in the machines. A lot of times waiting for pizza to to get uh, baked in the oven while you're waiting there. They always and have there the, you the, go. the tabletop just, uh, pack, man. I always back to food, Mark. Yeah, it's a good bring back to food. All right, all right. <laughs> We're not talking about food today, Sean. No, we we actually done something that uh, we 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 mentioned sometimes, and like, hey, we should have a series about this, and then we eventually we don't. But this time, we actually <laughs> stick with the plan. We had a conversation with Carrie uh, and Raphael not too long ago about video games and gaming industry and the metaverse and a bunch of other things, and uh, we said, you know, there is so much we can talk about here, so. Here we are. We're here. We're here. And uh, this, this series has no limits either, Marco. And also, I think we have no plans. So. No plan. <laughs> I, think, I think the only plan we have is to kind of test the, the waters for what drives what. Imagination to technology or the other way around or, or is it something completely different? Um, and who knows where we're going to go with this? Um, I, I say we start with a known, which is who Raphael and Carrie are, who we know them, but our audience may not. If you didn't hear the last episode, after you finish this one, please listen to that one because it was, it was mind-blowing. Um, but Raphael and Carrie, a uh, few words from each of you, just kind of re reintroduce your folks or yourselves to our audience. Uh, Rafi first. All right. Uh, so, Raphael Brown, I'm a uh, game designer and developer. I've been uh, developing for oh, 26 years now uh, across a range of platforms from PC to console to mobile to VR. Um, 
actually even some AR as well. <laughs> so um, I've worked at, at, at a range of places, um, but uh, Electronic Arts, Activision, um, uh, 2K Games, Nintendo, uh, uh, Midway, and, and others, um, studios large and small. Um, I, I think that just to sum it up, um, I try to be uh, platforming technology agnostic. Um, I try to kind of remember and remind myself to be a, a, a pure designer, um, which means that I want to sit down with whatever technology is ahead of me and try to figure out how to optimize for that and make a good experience for the player. Uh, the player, a user-centric design is the most important thing for a good game designer. Make a good experience that the player can feel like they can get immersed in. And Carrie, you don't care about the user, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do care about the user. But, uh, I'm joking, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to an extent. Not as much as Raph does. I mean, I, I care more about the, about the technology part of it. Um, I think I, I would describe myself as technologically curious. Uh, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been started my career as a developer before going on to work in massive game studios, uh, Electronic Arts, where I met Raph, and then working at uh, Nexon, when part of the leadership team that took it public before joining smaller studios, and then now I'm finally deep into the technology space, AI, virtual worlds, metaverse, and what what implications AI has uh, for all of these stuff and and beyond beyond just games, um, and that's uh, that's what uh, that what keeps it interesting for me. And I'm happy to happy to be here and talk more about that. Nice, nice. Well, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Um, let, let's kick it off. I've been, so you all know that I played console games at the arcade and then at the pizza joint. Um, what about you guys? I think it sounds like Midway. I think that's a the company that makes some of those i, I presume <laughs> rafael you 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 had to play them <laughs> but what about what about uh, uh in, oh for, i've, I've always yeah. played games yeah um so um i i think like a lot of um a lot of game designers in in, in my time um we played like I, I i played card games board games um arcade games um, you know, I, my, my first, my first, uh, not game system, but computer was a, a TI-99. Um, you know, I, I learned to program basic on that, um, oftentimes copying out of, uh, out of magazines, you know, literally going like, okay, it says this here, type this in, um, you know, because, you know, that was kind of how you got started back in, in, in that time. Um, I, you know, my, my parents were very receptive to creative endeavors. They're both teachers. Um, because of that, um, I got exposed to um, Dungeons and Dragons back at, uh, at a summer camp outside of Seattle. And from there, got kind of a lifelong fascination with the creation of games and the connection also between games and storytelling and the notion that, that uh, games are about play and they're about this kind of playful interactive storytelling. Um, I, I very quickly connected the fact that my father had a close family friend who was a Ghanaian master drummer who in his spare time would, uh, would tell my brother and I stories. You know, he would come over after performances and he would tell us stories of Anansi the Spider. 
um, that notion of telling us a story and having that story come to life, I connected to then going and playing um, Dungeons and Dragons around a literal campfire and going, oh, right, there's a rule book and dice, but we don't actually need it. Um, these are expressions of rules and rules are ways to codify how we can work and interact, but we can also just sit here around a campfire as kids in summer camp in the late 70s and basically go, one person is creating a story and the rest of us are participating. It's call and response. Um, the story is the thing that we create together and realizing that there's not that much of a jump from that to playing on an Atari 2600 or to going into an arcade and sitting down with an arcade cabinet and realizing that these things are all connected. That if I'm sitting down with Robotron 2084 or uh, Moon Patrol or any number of games like that, it's, it's collectively creating a story together and the story is not the narrative that might be at the top of the cabinet, um, the story is the experience. So to me, it's always been about bringing those things together and then just figuring out in this next session, how much can we tell, how much can we show, what interaction is capable, what does the technology allow us to do to replace the dice? <laughs> yeah, and you, you said it wasn't a big, a big leap from the campfire to a, a T1, <laughs> but, but there, it does have technology, right? The computer. And I guess the, the point I want to take to carry is you might have a really great story and you can share that easily around a campfire, maybe create a, a simple game to represent that story on a, on a computer. But it's that story. And I always, there's, all, there's a story that my grandfather used to tell me. It was a dark and stormy night. The boys around the fire sat. The, the boys said, tell us a story, Jack. And Jack said, okay, boys, here it goes. It was a dark and stormy night. The boys around, so the, boys around the fire sat. They said, tell us a story, Jack. And Jack said, okay, boys, here it goes. It was a dark. Kind of get the point, right? It was, that's the story. That's what they're able to tell. So, Carrie, the, how do you manage the relationship with technology to actually be prepared or be able to tell the story that you want to tell in the game oh and i think i think you, you it, it's that's a very interesting fact so technology is always i think with creative stuff i mean it's, it's a bit of a bit of a balancing act so you 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 technology is always i feel a lot of times playing sort of catch up to to the folks who are creative where for example, you said dark and stormy night. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's an emotional aspect to it, which you've got to capture. There's a visual aspect to it, which a lot of it is, I mean, your imagination can do a lot of things with that. Now, to bring that into an actual screen, there's a whole bunch of stuff. That emotion has to be created using technology, using visual effects. Uh, sound is another big piece of it. Uh, and then overall environment that, that portrays that emotion of dark and stormy night. And so... While it sounds simple enough it, when you're sitting on a campfire, creating or recreating that same effect in, in inside a piece of software is is extremely challenging. Um, and you also want to have the same sort of uniform experience. When you say dark and stormy night, just about anybody listening to that automatically is the thunder, lightning going on, 
it's constant. So that stuff is pictured. And now if you want to portray that on, on an actual computer screen, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of just even get anywhere close to that. So I think technology has always, um, I think in this case, in this specific case, I have to concede that technology sort of plays catch up to, to people who are creative where we are always striving to, to take what the creative people want to convey and then convey it properly in, in its truest form in technology. Uh, and, 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 and I think that's also, that also pushes technology beyond its existing boundaries and constantly allows us to improve. So, so it, it's, it's a challenge. It definitely keeps us, uh, keeps us on our toes and definitely, um, in fact, some of the innovation you'll see, uh, most of the innovation actually you'll see in this space comes from people in games and movie industries where they're pushing for, for this sort of imaginary visual effects that you want to. Yeah, let, let, let's talk about that because we, I, I'll be honest. So we, we decided to have a series of these. We didn't plan anything. So we have to decide what are we going to talk about here right before we, we push the record button. But as you can tell, we're not short of stories here. But the, the, the thing that we discussed before starting was maybe we could create a, a similar, like a parallel with the movie industry. And Carrie, you just, you just went there. Like where some writers maybe wrote a book it's easy to picture in your head. Some people do it better than others, but you know, there the limit, it's your imagination. I remember one of the first video game I used to play was just the one, I don't remember the name, but pretty much it was just code like text that will describe you the environment where you were on a blank screen. And then you you say, okay, turn left, turn right, go straight, and then tell me what you see. I think it was an an Atari. Uh, machine anyway for me that was enough because i could use my imagination for that for other people like show me that right so that's when the movie comes in and how things get a lot more complicated so we were talking about avatar i think that's a movie that everybody saw and how you needed the technology to actually catch up to show what the vision of Cameron was so. Carrie, you were making some really good point about about that and how sometimes we we need to go full circle in order to have the the right product. Maybe uh, absolutely, and I, I I see this a lot both in games and in movies where you you've got a script or you've got an idea, but you you just don't have the technology to do to bring it to life. Uh, and in games, actually, it becomes a little more complex because in movies, it's, it's a one-way. There's, there's no actual active interaction. With games, it is active interaction. There's repeatability. And so you want to you want to make sure that if the player is going through the same level twice, it's a similar emotion. The dark and stormy night cannot turn into a bright and sunny day. So you have to create the same emotion every single time. So it actually becomes even more challenging. Um, but a lot of times, there's some excellent books and there's some great game ideas floating around there and a lot of people are just waiting for the right right um, sort of technology to to be around and we've also seen the opposite where people have people have uh, sort of not waited and and decided they they can't wait and they produce stuff and then you suddenly see something that's not the production quality is low or the storytelling aspect is sort of fragmented because again the technology just cannot support that the level of um, 
visual and sensory um, sort of projection that's required for that. And Raphael, I'm wondering, because um, we're talking about games and movies and, and Carrie touched on a point that so a movie presumably have a lot of time to prepare it and then it is what it is, right? So you can work out the story with the technology and the presentation of that and, and do editing and all this and kind of get it in, in a good state. And that is what it is, right? Maybe it gets cut for, for, for TV use. I don't even know if they do that anymore, but, but a game to, to Gary's point is very different, right? There's interaction, um, different paths. Um, I don't know. Maybe the dark and stormy night does need to become bright and sunny for some situations. Maybe it's, Depending on who who you are, if it's a kid, maybe it is a a uh, bright and sunny day instead of a dark and stormy night until you get an older age. I guess my point is, how how do you look at the story? And and Carrie kind of said, you bring this stuff to to light too soon, it could be maybe not a great experience. How do you, as a storyteller, ensure that you're not compromising the story, given the the technology limitations, perhaps that you may have? in the game? Um, so I, I think it's a tricky balance. I mean, I, I think that the folks within our industry who start with a rigid story that they want to tell, they generally need to wait until it is possible technologically to tell that story. Um, oftentimes, um, people can have an idea of a thing, it, but if they want an exact story, then it is a question of waiting. And, and, and there are definitely parallels to film. And Neil Gaiman has said recently that, um, that Warner Brothers talked about adapting uh, Sandman uh, back in the 90s. And he, uh, he forced them not to. Um, you know, he basically said it, it's not ready. You know, because what they would have been doing was basically taking his 75-issue you know, run and condensing it down to a 100-minute movie. And, um, and, and even, if, even if they just were to take parts of it, not just the technology, but how the technology was being conveyed, uh, the entertainment in, at that time, it wasn't ready to tell that story. Um, and, and so I, I think that, that games are often similar where the thing to keep in mind when we're making games is that we're starting with a, a, a simulation and we're saying, okay, there's this general expression of an idea that we want to take, and for the technology, how much of it can we actually convey? And if you roll back to like the 70s or 80s, you know, it's like this much, you know, we can take, you know, we can take 5% of that simulation. And, you know, now we're maybe at, we can take 40 or 50%. But when we think about a real world activity, not just the visuals, but the physics and the audio and the interaction, we always boil it down. Like games are about going, you go from this and you, and then you, you, you narrow down and, and you funnel through to see what you can keep. Um, you know, a, 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 I'll just I'll run through a couple of quick stories to help illustrate that. Um, Warren Spector and Harvey Smith have talked about the process of making the first Deus Ex and how, you know, they wanted this very open game, but Warren had an idea of a story and he was sometimes painting pictures in his head of how that story would look. And Harvey would have to go like, okay, we can do a, um, we can do a camp rescue here. 
Um, but you can't have a thousand people in the camp because we can't render that many. Um, and we can't move the, all those people around. Like you have a, a big scene, we're gonna have to boil that down. Like what's the essence of that scene? You know, it, it, it's almost like indie filmmaking going like, you want this big thing, great, here's our budget. What can we do with five people, not a thousand? <laughs> so that, that's really important um, in terms of, of, of a presentation of a scene but also sometimes it's just the core of what you can render. Um, so like, like a, a good example of that, just shifting over to id Software, um, is that they went from Wolfenstein to Doom and they went, okay, we can kind of do this two and a half D thing. And then after, after Doom, and they'd done Doom and Doom 2, and they're like, okay, we've done a lot of this one thing. All of those guys were, you know, all those guys were playing basically D&D together. They wanted to do a big expansive RPG um, because they were playing that and they were li literally like, let's take a bunch of our RPG and party mechanics and all of this and this fantasy world and let's transport it into the, into the computer. And that was an early idea. And then kind of the rubber hits the road and and Carmack realizes like, okay, I can, I can bring this into 3D, but there's only so much I can bring into 3D. And so Quake starts as this RPG on paper and then they cut and they cut and they cut. And at a certain point he's like, guys, we need to ship a game soon. <laughs> you know, like th th there, there's a reality of like, we need to make a thing. And he's like, this is what we have available. Um, what we can do in the time remaining, it'll look pretty cool and it'll be much more, it'll really be 3D, but we're mostly going to do the sort of shooter stuff that we did with doom because that's what we can do now and all this rpg stuff we, we can't render it we can't run it it's too complex and so like he had to kind of go in and go um what can we make quickly in the time remaining um because we have a production schedule and we have a budget and we have a contract and we're supposed to ship a thing at a certain point in time and we're running out of time and so at, at a certain point, they basically went, well, they built parts of a bunch of different levels and they repurposed all those and they built and modified and grew them, but they effectively ended up with four designers building in four radically different styles, uh, building different sets of levels because initially they envisioned they were gonna have this world and then they realized that the tech wasn't ready for that. And so then you've essentially got like, John Romero and Sandy Peterson and Tom Hall and um, and Tim Willits building um, and, and American McGee, but like they're building in different styles and they're not trying to, to bring that together. They're basically going, okay, so there's just gonna be the central hub and the stuff that you build is gonna, it's gonna be the play that we had before because we know that and we know it works. And we're gonna focus on learning these 3D level tools, and we're just gonna make that, and John's convinced that it can be faster and more fluid than it ever was before, and we're just gonna go with that. And so then you basically got John Carmack and Micah Brash going, we can make it feel fluid at 60 frames a second, and it's gonna be smooth like butter, and we're gonna be able to transition from the single player to as many as 32 players in the multiplayer, and that's gonna be new and that's gonna to have to be enough because we have to ship this in like nine months. <laughs> you, you pointed out two, two additional constraints I mean, besides. So I think 
the couple of things that that besides technology that's always a constraint is is time and budget i think given enough enough time and enough enough budget i think technology usually will catch up to the creative stuff but we we we've also got to pay our bills so you've got to create something and put something out there so people can see it so i think that there's always that challenge so part, part of the constraint is is the the limiting uh, budget limiting factors and, and the time like you want you want to release every everything by a certain like typically in the games is the thanksgiving window where you want the games to be out there otherwise you start losing money yeah but like keep in mind that those constraints are not bad things that that notion of you have this much time and money your your team has a particular experience so like i, I will say like i love you know I have a long affection for id games long before I worked there, but um, in my in my view, Quake One is one of the greatest games of all time, and it's not because they sat down and said, "Hey, we have the perfect game." It's because they got into a time crunch and they sat down and looked at what tech they had and what resources they had, and they said we can make a better thing that we than we did for doom and doom 2 and they had a particular trajectory but they made that game and it became great because it was that particular game that they've been working on for a while brought into 3d and um for i, I know you know for a number of us like for myself super mario 64 and quake one were games where i said like uh, I'm kind of starting to make games. So I was like, 3D, this is this is what I was born to do. And these guys just showed, you know, on the N64 and on a Windows PC, they like GL Quake showed a vision of, of what a 3D world can be in real time that we'd been talking about since the 80s. And, and, it, and it didn't mean that we couldn't have other types of experiences but just like it was focused. GL Quake and Quake 1 was focused in the same way that Robotron 2084 is focused. It does this pure thing really, really well, and other things fall away, and sometimes it's better for that. So is it is it always the book better than the movie? <laughs> no, um, this has a lot of angles, so feel free to take wherever you want. I think so... I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, so I would like to say, yes, the books always leave, let your imagination go wild enough. Yet there's very few movies in my mind uh, who have actually captured the essence of what the, the writer's trying to convey. But part of it is also, I think part of it can, comes down to the time budgetary constraints. And if you literally, so if you have unlimited budget and ample amount of time, you can potentially get to a point where it's very close to it. But, but the, the, genius of all of this is trying to take those constraints and still produce something that's uh, that people don't watch and people enjoy um, so uh, oh, no no I, I just want to add to that because i'm thinking as you're describing certain things here and i'm thinking like if you are the director the write the movie or if you are the director of the video game and you write the script you know what you can do and what you cannot do so you're kind of writing with what you could realize in mind. So you're constrict 
right, Raphael? But but you 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 play with the creativity that it allows yeah, you. Yes and yes and no. Um, so I, I will say that um, I think every single game that I've worked on um, has, let's say that that has a coherent level sequence has changed the order of those levels prior to ship every single game. Um, you have an idea of a story, you have an idea of a sequence, but things change and get cut. Um, and, and sometimes for, for all sorts of reasons, like I can remember working on The Hobbit and we had a, a great level designer who built out a fantastic vision of Rivendell um, and the Tolkien estate uh, and, and, and it got approved by Tolkien Enterprises and the Tolkien estate saw it and was like, that's not Rivendell. Um, <laughs> and, and we're like, well, it, it, we thought this would be our Rivendell. And, and they're like, yeah, so that's not gonna work. Like, so we ended up mostly cutting Rivendell because we didn't have time in the schedule after building up this fantastic vision of Rivendell that worked and was gonna have all this RPG interaction. And they're like, yeah, that's not Rivendell. So we're like, oh, so that gets removed. Now we need to move things around. And we like, we were literally like, we have to keep the sequencing of the book, but we have to shift things around because this level failed, this level got cut. And, and you just, you, you adapt with what you have, um, which to be fair, often happens in, in film as well, that, that the, the editor is sometimes bringing the story together and going like, this scene doesn't work here, but it works over here. Um, it, it's, it's important. And, and I'll say that it, in a transmedia sense, um, across any mediums, you know, book, film, animation, TV, uh, video games, the important thing is not to have a rigid notion, but to go, what works when you bring it into this medium. So like, I'll give two examples. Um, I think that Blade Runner the movie is on par with Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep because they're so different. Mm. Um, and Blade Runner as, as a film has, has influenced a whole ton of folks more so than the book. I love the book. The book is amazing. It's philosophical, but the movie has given visual language to an entire generation of creators. Um, similarly, uh, Stanislaw Lem's um, uh, Stalker is a fantastic book and it's very meditative. Uh, Andrei, uh, uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker film, which is incredibly long and it's really slow, um, but for those who weather it, it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It's a three hour film, um, maybe a little bit longer, and it's really slow and has almost no dialogue. But beyond the fact that it's been brought into games by um, GSC Game World, and they took it in a whole different direction and made it an open world FPS, but the film in my mind, like I love Stanislaw Lem, but the film transcends Lem because the film does things with cinematography without any visual effects because it was made in 79. And so in a particular medium, if you work to that medium, you make something magical just for that medium, regardless of the medium. And Carrie, I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the technology and uh, yeah, back in the day I used to sling, sling code and, and uh, help bring 
tons of products to market. And as a product manager, I would sell stories. Granted, not as flavorful or as colorful as a, as a game or a movie, but there were stories there. And then we'd have to go and, and work with the architects and, and, the, and the engineers to say, okay, how are we going to deliver this story? And there are oftentimes, looking at uh, obviously rendering for movies different than rendering for consoles and PCs and all kinds of different things, but there are technologies that you can kind of pull together. Everything's API driven nowadays. You can buy services, you can buy modules. Is the gaming industry the same in that regard where you can, you can buy that dark and stormy night rendering? <laughs> you can. In fact, in fact, in fact, one of the, one of the, one of the first things I did when I got headfirst into gaming is right, right shaders, which are literally these effects, um, like the fire effect or the explosion effect or the smoke effect. Um, you write shaders and those are small libraries that you pull in when you when you need that effect in game so absolutely you can you can do that and i think that's that's that those libraries of effects both music both sound uh, sound effects and visual effects is getting larger and larger and in fact a lot of the game engines these days come with a bunch of pre-built-in effects um so it, it's definitely getting to a point where, where if, you, if i want if I want a smoke screen or if I want, if I want if the tire screeching, I want to project that smoke coming out of there. I, I found in fact, which actually the physics is built in, everything is built in, you just have to apply it. Um, so it's definitely getting better. And I, I envision this getting even, even more advanced and much better visually uh, as, as compute becomes cheaper. I have a question that is always in my head because I, I just love Disney and Pixar, I'm a big fan of the animation. I like the classic. I like the Lady and the Tramp. I like, uh, you know, the 101 Dalmatian and all of that. And at the beginning... 101 I, Dumbos. Dumbos, too. There was only one with two big ears, though. <laughs> and when, when it started to be computerized, I just didn't... It didn't click with me because I, I wanted to be in a completely different world. I wanted to be in the... In the world where where you where you draw something, it's kind of like writing a book. It's com everything is allowed. You can do that, and and Disney was really good at it. But then, as animation, I mean, as computer graphic become better and better, and in the games you you, you see that reality. Then I, I kind of started to accept that, but I still draw a difference between the two. And I, I'm curious, why are we not seeing? I guess cartoonish uh, video games. I remember there were a few in the arcade, actually, back in the in the days. And and everything is trying to be so so real. Why? Do people well, want to see themselves in it? What, what's the story there? So I think part of it is also I mean, this whole shit. This is where the whole metaverse stuff comes in. And then people want to see more photorealistic uh, imagery. Um, and so I think that... Well, there's two... I think there's two... In my mind, there's two things that make a game fantastic. One is gameplay aspect. And if you look at all of the Nintendo stuff, they, they don't really care much for the visual part of it. They focus purely on gameplay. So a lot of a lot of their visual stuff is very, it's got a very classic style, not necessarily photorealistic, but they focus a lot on intense gameplay stuff. And then there's the other side of stuff. And you, you see some games like um, Grand Theft Auto, for, for example, and it's getting more, or, or Battlefield or, or yeah, or um, what's, what's the other one? Which is oh gosh, I'm, I'm 
the big one from Activision, which is again a war game with Call of Duty. It's all very photorealistic, and you 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 need a bit of gameplay and photorealism. So depends on depends on um, what what is demanded. And I think with the whole shift to getting into the whole metaverse where people are creating their own avatars and they want to see they want to see as photorealistic stuff as possible. So I think they, that, they want to see themselves in it. They they want well they want to see a better version of themselves. Like when we create avatars, <laughs> we leave out all all the all the like if, if I create an avatar, my avatar is guaranteed not gonna have all the gray hair. It's gonna <laughs> I'm going to be 20 years old, muscular. I mean, that, that's that's what you want to see. You want you want to see a much enhanced and better version. We all do, right? And so the the in the metaverse and it allows you to create at least physically better ver versions of yourself. Yeah, but when you go into I don't know World of Warcraft and you decide to be an ogre, that, that's like I mean, <laughs> you, a... you you still don't want to see you still don't want to see. Uh, the, Maybe the first iteration of World of Warcraft, you could see still some of the triangulation of, of uh -huh. and the the, the polygon yeah. rendering. But no, now I was just joking about that. Yeah. But now you want to see you want to see the hair moving, you want to see the wind effect, and all of that stuff. So all of people, even if you're looking at non-photorealistic, you want the rest of the you want the physics of the environment uh -huh. to actually impact. So so sneezes and talking and then uh, you know people want binaural <laughs> sound and people want if there's a breeze they want the hair floating and then they, they want the, the wrinkles in the dresses uh the costumes they're wearing so all these are minor details but all of that actually have these subtle subtle details actually make for a better overall player experience if you play uh if you play tomb raider that's that's one game which has basically come from really really early stage and it, it, you, they're still making it so you see you see the visual difference between back in the day if you Lara Croft's jaw is very like square it, it, there's, there's mm -hmm. very geometric and now it's more human-like it's more photorealistic so the lighting and everything yeah the well and, and there's there's a sense of of um some of the old types of, of production uh, become indie um, and and it's not that they don't happen but so, so like think of it as uh, Cuphead as an example is a 2D game with th that that's all um, you know it's, it's all visual style that's a it's harkening back to the early days of Disney um, and you know it, it kind of combines um, fast action shooter you know shoot 'em up aspects with um, with, with those sorts of visuals, uh, Ori in the Blind Forest, Hollow Knight, um, Limbo, like th th there are a ton of games that are often simpler and they're smaller productions and, and they're made by indie folks that are, you know, usually, you know, teams of, of like, let's say loosely speaking, five to, to, to 15, um, sometimes even smaller, like Fez, if, if I remember correctly, was, was made by two folks. Um, and um, so y you find that there's there's a active and vibrant space for indie games, but the bigger players, the publishers and the internal studios are always kind of pushing for the blockbusters. And so think of it as like the Activision Blizzards and the Electronic Arts and Ubisofts or, um, you know, like a, a Sony or a Microsoft w w or a Nintendo will fund and have some of those indies because they have a platform but their own productions get bigger and bigger. Um, and, and, and sometimes it gets hard then to 
to kind of keep that together. So like a, a good example is recently uh, Sega showed the new Sonic, which is Sonic Frontiers as an open world game. And people, you know, there's been a reaction to it where people are like, well, so there's Sonic there. And then there's a thing that looks like an Unreal 5 tech demo and everything is realistic. And then there's Sonic. Um, and, and so people are looking at it and they're going like, well, Sonic should have a background in an environment that visually matches him and you guys don't because Sonic has an, a visual aesthetic that goes back to the Sega Genesis. Um, and, and the thing is that it's actually in some respects hard to do a, a heavily stylized visual style. It's not impossible, but it's harder to do that with a big complex world where you have grass and you have waves and you have all sorts of, of you know, trees like to make everything stylized with a really big world it's kind of easier to go, well, if we set all of our artists up to do a realistic style and we're making need for speed, they know what to look for. Maybe there's a little bit of filtering on top. There's a mm -hmm. little bit of a visual tweak, but it's a lot easier than to go, okay, let's make everything look like Cuphead, but it's a big 3D world that's the size of, of a GTA world. Right. Uh, every, everything, everything big goes towards realism because it's easier if you've got a team of you know, 100 to 200 to 500 to go copy the real world. <laughs> I never thought of that way. Like the car game, like GT and, and like the car's dynamic and, and the way they turn and everything. I guess if you were going to invent a, a new way to do that, that that will be extremely complex. So like talking, recreating an entire Copy word, an entire language. Yes, right? copying the real world is often the easiest thing to do. Even if it's hard technologically, you just go look outside, make it like that. Um, Not, and and, and it, is, it is then harder, but if, if, a, if a studio can figure out a style, so like think of Studio Ghibli, if you can figure out a house style and say, we're gonna build a big production, but everything has to fit, has to fit that style. And, and Disney, in, in some respects, to bring it back, is still in, in some ways trying to figure out their house style after going off in, in, into CGI. Mm -hmm. So where, where does the indie innovation come in? I don't know. So they don't have, obviously, big, big budgets to do blockbuster things. Does that mean they're, they cut back on the storyline? They cut back on the levels? They cut back on some of the features? And and in replace of that, where where do they innovate to kind of capture an audience that that they wouldn't get otherwise? Well, I think indie. I think most most indie developers and most independent developers actually focus uh, more on the gameplay and, and storytelling, which which the big studios tend to ignore. They tend to. I, if you look at the trends, most big studios or the big uh, publishing houses are, are focused more on franchise model, where they're one one massive title uh, or property and then they develop multiple franchises out of that and they keep year on year I mean, need for speed fifa call of duty classic examples mm. but you because of the tools that we talked about like the stuff available to indie developers now actually a two-person team can literally churn out games or at least create small games with their own storyline have a smaller audience and then go from there i think if i'm not wrong minecraft started like that isn't it a small small group of people decided 
this is what we're going to do. And before you knew it, it, it this massive, this massive movement now, uh, which, which can't be stopped. But so there is this definitely innovation happening. And I think indie developers tend to take more riskier approaches or approaches or, or storylines that are considered more risky by the big studio. Uh, most big publishing houses have got external constraints. Like they've got the shareholders, they've got the board of directors, they've got a captive audience that they want to cater to and, and not sort of turn off. While indies, when you're starting out, you're literally starting with a blank state. So if there's something that you want to do, which is can be borderline controversial, that you can still go and do it, or it's borderline risky in terms of brand new concept, never been explored, um, too risky for big studios. So there's a lot of innovation in storytelling and creativity there. And because they're budget constrained, you'd be surprised how much innovation happens in, in constraints, um, timelines and budgets. Any any examples, maybe, uh, you or Raf, to, to say this would have never been done? Well, I'll, I'll give you an old example, but okay. slightly away from games, but but it's, you guys remember the movie called Blair Witch Project? Oh, yeah. It, it <laughs> yes. was, was a tiny movie, tiny, literally short, I think. It was, it was deliberate, but it had tiny but tiny budget small crew super small crew but it's become a cult classic uh, it's become this massive massive thing uh, and then you, you've seen the opposite you've seen Waterworld, which is massive multi-million dollar budget and went straight to the bottom of the sea floor uh, but literally. <laughs> literally yes but but in games i'm not I, i'm trying to think of um I'll, I'll, I'll throw a couple of examples out. So, um, Braid, um, you know, Braid was was made by one one developer, um, you know, Jonathan Blow. And he then, you know, his his next game was made by fifteen people, and, and and they grew kind of their vision. But he had a notion of of, of a story about kind of love and loss and like dealing with. Um, uh, with a breakup and and he put that into a game and he built a game that was actually a fairly punishing game around uh, platforming and um, and time reversal but it was connected to this notion that he was trying to deal with a personal you know relationship and he was tr and he was trying to not just go like let me you know, bad mouth. He, he was basically going like, let me deal with the feeling of loss and isolation and wanting to have a do-over. <laughs> and let me put that into a notion of platforming where the character, where the player can rewind the character to, to do the, the, the difficult things again. And, and so definitely I, I've seen any number of, of um, games where as, as Carrie said, the indie developer um, puts it connects ideas of gameplay and story together. You know, Fez is another great example where you go, okay, you've got a 2D world and you've got, but the world can rotate, but you can only see, you know, two dimensions at a time. Um, Monument Valley is another mm. um, where, where you go, they, they wanted to play with optical illusions and geometry um, but there's also a very touching story that's going along with it. And so it's rare, but still possible to see larger groups do that. Um, Ubisoft at one point with their game art framework said, Hey, we're going to do, we're going to go back intentionally and do 2d gameplay. 
and uh, not just with Rayman, but you know, that, like they, they told a, a war story, um, you know, a, about uh, World War One um, in in a cartoony style with simple exploration and platforming and a little bit of stealth. But you know, they they kind of intentionally were like, this will recharge some of our folks by letting them go off in a small group and make a thing that's away from our big productions that have 150 to 500 people. Let's let 30 people go off here and work on something. And they're actually in groups of like, you know, five to 10. So that's very possible, but you almost have to intentionally do it because sometimes with a big company, it's the opportunity cost. They go, Hey, um, we're only going to put out so many, and we're only going to put out and market so many games a year. Um, do we want to market a small game? And and then you get EA with you know um, you know after EA has had um, a lot of bad press, they go, we're going to, you know, we may have shut down EA Partners, but we're going to do EA Originals, and we need to rehabilitate our image, and we're going to work with indies. You know, the EA Original stuff is not coming from internal, but they're going. We'll do games like It Takes Two, um, you know, where it's really about a story of two people who, who are, their relationship is breaking down and they're going into a divorce and they've been sucked into a game and in the game they have to cooperate. Like those ideas happen better when you make something small and when you give time to find the pacing of what the story is and you have enough time to make the gameplay creative and unusual and you don't have to go okay so we're making need for like I, I can remember you know ea production meetings going so need for speed comes out every year on black friday how many days do we have and we go like this is how much we have to make right. and it becomes regimented because you go structurally we have to build all stuff sometimes when you're smaller now or 20 years ago or 10 years in the future, you'll go, we can still make a small intimate thing because we have the time to do it and we have the technology to do it, but we can actually afford to experiment. That's what they call feeding the beast, right? When you become uh, big so enough, too big to, to, and to maintain the beast, you know, to maintain all the people working. And so you're like, this is not about making an innovative game. This is about meeting the bottom line of, yep, every year <laughs> we got to come out with this. Well, the other thing, thing is that most indie, indie, indie developers can actually experiment cheaply. They, they, their right. cost of experimentation is significantly cheaper than something right. like Electronic Arts or an Activision. Because um, well, they Electronic Arts and Activision or companies like that will not do something cheap. And even if they do it, they send two people to create something. They have to put some marketing dollars behind it. There's a whole system in place for them. For indies, and they've got nothing to lose. And they kind of like, just mm. kind of do this crazy idea. We'll throw it out there because this, we love it. That's good. Nobody's going to tell us it has to come out on Black Friday. It'll come out exactly when we want it to come out. And then, mm. boom. Love it. Love it. Love it. And, uh, and I think I have a lot of ideas on what we can talk about next time. Are you going to be uh, Roger Rabbit in the next... Uh... Water world video game, Marco. You know, I, when we were talking about <laughs> that that um, Sonic, 
into a, a world that he's not in. I, I thought about who framed Roger Rabbit. Well, that was and, an excellent yeah. movie. Yeah, it was ahead yeah of and there was that really distinct yeah. cartoonish. I mean, even if Mary Poppins, you have this scene with kind the of unnatural, but it was it was I mean, Mask was another movie that was really right. well. Oh, the Mask was good. Yeah, with a bit of animation. But... Actually, have any of you guys seen the new um, <clears throat> Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers movie? Because uh, I will say it's kind of the Who Framed Roger Rabbit of our time. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So I, it, they have a lot of great inside jokes, but um, they went out of their way and they worked really hard. You know, to be fair, the, the, the producers um, behind that the director worked really hard with Disney Legal to be able to bring in other um other creations because they didn't want it to be, oh, here's a world about animation characters and they're all Disney characters. They're like, no, no, we need to have this, this functioning fictional LA that has all of these different animated characters from different scenarios. Like they, they, they specifically referenced the Who Framed Roger Rabbit scene where you've got Donald Duck and Daffy Duck playing piano together. They're like, we need that sort of thing. And, and, and the thing is that they pull it off. Like they, they actually have a range of animated characters. And one of the funniest things in that movie, and, and, and I still kind of giggle when I see it, is that they brought in Ugly Sonic. For, for any listeners that don't know who Ugly Sonic is, Ugly Sonic was the original design for the Sonic movie um, where he's got kind of human teeth and, and he's kind of, real more realistically rendered and he's not quite as cartoony and his proportions are more human-like and he goes into this kind of weird uncanny valley where it's not really the sonic character from the genesis but it's this kind of like almost cosplaying sonic and before the sonic movie came out there was a really heavy reaction of like that's not sonic it's mm. we don't know what that is but it's not sonic so in the chippendale rescue rangers movie they actually call him like he calls himself Ugly Sonic. Like he is, he is literally in that movie. He's the failed actor that they dropped where they went to the one that they used for the movie, and he's in a comic convention and he's like hawking his his wares, and it it works because they have all these different characters that are different IP and different universes and they bring them together, and that's just one of many examples where. He's self-referential. He's voiced by a fantastic comedian and he makes fun of himself and he's talking about how he's going to get into a, um, into a crime procedural, uh, which is going to be called, if I remember correctly, it's, 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 it's like, it's like ugly crime, uglier Sonic, like it, it, or like ugly Sonic, uglier crimes, but like he's, He's constantly playing with the notion that he was rejected by the mainstream. So and yet, it was the original one. It was <laughs> yes. supposed to be the original one. It's and, and like, he knows that too. <laughs> it's kind of like when they pick uh, a second choice for a big role into a movie, and then it becomes that character. Yeah. Like, that wasn't actually supposed to be him. And yeah. I think there's oh, many of these cases. In, exactly. In and, and actually, one last thing. The, the kind of the central conceit, of this buddy picture um, between two SNL comedians who've been transported into being Chip and Dale is that they had a falling out, they come back, you know, they haven't seen each other for 20 years. And one of the two chipmunks has gotten CGI surgery. 
And so you've got one that is, is 2D and one that is 3D. And it kind of works because it's, it's, me, com it's, it's, it's completely ridiculous. But oh, like, I have to see this. It's not oh, made. It's one of those things like Who Framed Roger Rabbit that's kind of built for adults. And you go into it and they're just layer upon layer of jokes for people who understand. What's it called? Chippendale, Chippendale Rescue? Sorry. Chippendale Rescue Rangers on, on Disney Plus. Okay. But like I, 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 I went like I went into it and I was I was like, yeah, I don't know what this is. And then I'm like, oh, like the entire cast is is former SNL folks. Definitely watching it tonight. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a plan. Marco, there's one thing I want to bring up, and you, you mentioned something of books translated to movies and, and, and where there was, there's a, they, they've projected it properly. In one of my favorite books that my grandfather used to read and my dad used to read to us when we were kids was Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. Uh, mm -hmm. So that book, even the first Jungle Book, which is 2D cell animation, they did a great job of capturing some of the storytelling and the imagination. And then I think there was a newer version they did a live action. Disney did a live action, yep. which again, I was, I was, I didn't have a lot of hopes for it, but they did a great job. I mean, of, of basically capturing the essence of that book, both in terms of storytelling and the visuals, into the live action. So I think that's that's one of the few book to movies of recent time that comes to mind, which actually then then which comes quite close to what what did Kipling wanted. Uh, on his, in, in his storytelling to project it. And sometimes that you it change, not completely, but if, if you look at, and then I know, Sean, now I'm playing you like one last, one more thing, <laughs> then you can kill this conversation. Well, I'm stuck on that he got read Jungle Book and I got read It's a Dark and Stormy Night. <laughs> There's a little mismatch. Well, my, my last reference is going to be very coffee. Italian, actually, because <laughs> it's, it's about Pinocchio. Like, a lot of people know the story of Pinocchio as it was told by Disney, which is pretty pretty loose interpretation of what Collodi wrote. It, it's a it, safe interpretation, now. <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, way darker in the, in the Collodi <laughs> original one. Uh, with that said... I think uh, we, we can jump in so many more things and uh, I'll be curious to, to see what we're going to talk about next time, Sean. I'm excited. I don't know pizza for parlor. why. But... Pizza parlor. I'm, that's what I'm my, my pizza, vote is pizza, pizza parlor. parlor. <laughs> uh, perfect. Well, there, there, is, there is now 3D rendered pizza driven by AI and we could talk and I could talk awesome on, on that. I mean, All right. Benefits of, of AI generated pizza. How's that it taste? Yeah, it it doesn't smell no my belly. I don't know how. <laughs> I am not sure I want to find out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's our homework is to watch uh, Rescue Rangers and uh, eat some virtual pizza. There you go. Right after I eat some real pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so, sounds like a New, plan. I think a New York slice is in order. New York AI-generated pizza. <laughs> there, there you go. Well, you guys, this was fun. Uh, yep. Exactly what I expected and, and something more. I hope that everybody listening to this is going to say, hey, I'm curious to see what they had to say on the first episode. So there'll be a link to that on uh, on the podcast notes. And there is absolutely not a chronicle order because we we are not going to follow, as you can no tell, connection. any, any nope. rules at all. So, And we'll be back again uh, next yes. month. I'm coming as Ugly Sonic next time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come as a virtual pizza. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Raphael, what's up with you? What's, what's going to be your 
your uh, your avatar. <laughs> Raph is a storyteller. You probably have multiple avatars. <laughs> That's great. Well, I, I was I was going to say ugly Sonic, but you can be ugly Sonic. No, no, no. It, it's okay. Um, I, I was going to say ugly Sonic, but instead I'm going to say uh, Sweet Pete, and I'm going to ask you guys to watch Rescue Rangers and and uh, and, and figure out who Sweet Pete is and who plays him <laughs> because it's amusing. But I'm, I would encourage the viewers, some of our newer viewers who are not familiar with Roger Kipman, read Jungle Book and then watch mm. two movies. Actually, that's a very classic example of, of how yeah. literature has been converted to mm. visual yeah. and changes in tech as well. That's, yeah. that's still one of my favorite books yeah. of all time. So it definitely is, is my there is no there is a dark and stormy night in there in the last you know I get it every Every time I, I think of, of, of uh, it's a dark and stormy night, I, I think of um, uh, I, I think of Peanuts, uh, Charlie Brown, and, uh, and and the the representation of of it's a dark and stormy night that was brought into there, where uh, where if I remember correctly, Snoopy's writing it's a dark and stormy night, like that's his great American yeah. novel, <laughs> and and, and he's, he just cannot get past that. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Please knock and show me the cocktail. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Now we're going to go there, too. All right. I think uh, it's time well, to say goodbye. We just hit the one hour uh, mark. So okay. thank you for following. <laughs> and we hope you had some fun and uh, you'll be with us next time. Yeah. Wonderful. Love it. Thank you so much. Love it. Thanks, everybody. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at Nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society, and some even beyond that.